welcome to the 1570 Project. Today is once again Saturday and not Friday because, uh, I don't know, maybe because yesterday was Friday the 13th and things just never seemed to get off the ground. I don't know why, but uh, for whatever reason it didn't happen. But in any case, today is Saturday. The 1570 Project is coming out on Saturday today and I'm in a good mood because I'm going to talk about a bunch of random really interesting things that I've been ruminating on and I'm curious to hear what you think. So leave a comment or write back to me on Twitter if you have thoughts because I've been having a lot of thoughts about these things that I'm going to share with you. Um, Basically, this all started because I've been thinking a lot about vaccines and vaccine approvals and, you know, when we decide to let people take vaccines and the difference between that and mandating vaccines. Um, so as I think you might know that I've talked about in the past, uh, there's some debate about whether we should actually have approved the uh, COVID vaccines even earlier. Um you know, there's been a lot of talk about the COVID vaccines being rushed and less talk about them maybe being delayed for too long. But um, I think there's a legitimate case to be made that um, these biotech companies came out with um, vaccines in March of last year that then, you know, subsequently went into ver uh, very thorough trials, um, and we did have Operation Warp Speed that allowed them to do the trials concurrently rather than one after the other and allowed the FDA to grant them an emergency use application and guaranteed them that the United States would buy a lot of these vaccines so that they would be ready to go once authorization occurred. Um, but the truth is that they had the answer to a vaccine that worked even though, you know, they weren't sure how well it would work or if there could potentially be bad side effects or anything. They did have it last spring. And, you know, if there had been people who would have been willing to take it, which I bet some people would have been, that they could have taken that vaccine, provided an immediate real world trial and potentially saved quite a lot of lives, um, possibly if they had allowed the vaccine to go forward, you know, say they'd given out the vaccine in nursing homes in March of last year, given it a shot, you know, it, it's hard to imagine it could have been worse than what did actually unfold in nursing homes last year. And, you know, this is something that the FDA has to think about a lot because the FDA is in charge of deciding which things people are allowed to try and not allowed to try. And, you know, some of this, Trump attempted to kind of undo some of this red tape back with, um, you know, the right to try stuff with prescription drugs, allowing people to try novel solutions to things, you know, before they were fully approved. This was kind of a big thing uh, that Trump did. But that being said, the FDA still prevents people from taking a lot of medicines that are potentially beneficial to them. The COVID vaccine's not the only one. That's an example of this. So I read a really interesting piece last week on Scott Alexander's blog. Um, this is astralcodex10.substack.com. Um, some of you who've been with the Burn Barrel podcast a long time might actually remember that one of the first things I came onto the Burn Barrel to talk about with Tom was Scott Alexander's um, online forum, Slate Star Codex, um, that he took offline completely when he was threatened with doxing. So this was an online forum where kind of sciencey rationalist people all talked together and talked about data and science and, um, you know, bounced ideas off each other and things. And it was, uh, you know, a, a weird forum. There were a lot of, you know, kind of I suppose, um, anti-mainstream beliefs in there. The guy, Scott Alexander himself, is a uh, psychiatrist uh, who is also a gay polyamorous uh, person. So, you know, it's, it's not exactly like the mainstream, but it's an interesting forum where a lot of people were talking and it ended up getting taken offline because journalists threatened to dox the guy and, you know, put his uh, private practice business of psychiatry in danger um in any case uh the he had an article on his um sub stack that he now has 
called Adumbrations of Aducanumab, which is all about the FDA approval process and how it goes wrong. Um, and it talks about this uh, drug, this Alzheimer's drug that was in the news earlier this year called Aducanumab or Aduhelm, which is an Alzheimer's drug that the FDA approved, even though and it was controversial that the FDA approved it because um, the the evidence that it was helpful was uh, pretty weak. There, there was not a lot of strong data to show that it was helpful. It's probably safe. It probably doesn't do any harm, but it's... Um, probably not going to do much for your Alzheimer's actually. And um, it costs $50,000 a year for somebody to use it. And once the FDA approves it, Medicare has to cover it. So that means that now a lot of people are going to use this potentially questionable drug that probably doesn't do much at a huge cost and strain on the Medicare system. Um, so this was controversial at the time. So he starts off talking about that. But then he points out that actually what happens is not that the FDA is too lax about approving things, but that actually frequently they are too slow to approve things and that that actually costs many, many more lives than it needs to. So, you know, for example, um, he talks about uh, the... AIDS drugs that, you know, were not approved for years and probably tens of thousands of people lost their lives when they could have been using these drugs. He also talks about um, how the FDA used, um, used their power to stop independent labs from running COVID tests. And this is an especially interesting example. So I'm going to read you this little bit from his Substack piece here. Um, the, the countries that got COVID the best, South Korea and Taiwan, controlled it through test and trace. This allowed them to scrape by with minimal lockdowns and almost no deaths, but it only worked because they started testing and tracing really quickly, almost the moment they learned that coronavirus existed. A bunch of laboratories, universities, and healthcare groups in the U.S. came up with COVID tests before the virus was in the U.S. and were 100% ready to deploy them. But when the U.S. declared that COVID was a public health emergency, the FDA announced that the emergency was so grave that they were banning all coronavirus testing. Um... He writes, perhaps you might feel that this is exactly the opposite of what you should do during an emergency. This is a sure sign that you will never work for the FDA. Uh, the FDA supposedly had some plan in place to get non-shoddy coronavirus tests. For a while, the plan was to send all the samples to the CDC in Atlanta. And they'll allow the testing if and only if they do it directly in their headquarters. But the turnaround time at the CDC meant that people had to go around spreading the virus for days before they got the results back. And after that proved inadequate, the FDA allowed various other things. They told labs they would offer emergency approval for their kits, but placed such onerous requirements on getting the approval that almost no labs could achieve it. For example, you needed to prove you'd tested it against many different coronavirus samples, but it was so early in the pandemic that people didn't have access to that many. Then they approved a CDC kit, which the CDC could send to places other than their headquarters, but the kit contained a defective component and returned positive every time. The defective component was easy to replace, but if you used your own copy, like a cowboy, then the test wouldn't be FDA approved anymore and you could lose your license for administering it. A group called the Association of Public Health Laboratories literally begged the FDA to be allowed to deploy the COVID test they had sitting on the shelf ready for use. But the FDA had wrote back saying that false diagnostic test results could lead to significant adverse public health consequences. So basically what happened here is the FDA said this is too important. We can't risk anybody going out there with tests that don't work very well. And we don't know how all well these tests work. We haven't approved them. And so just nobody got tested then. So any hope of keeping the pandemic actually out of the United States through testing people was immediately doomed from the start because the FDA refused to uh, do anything about coronavirus tests when labs were running out here with solutions ready for them. Um, and it's not just COVID. It's not just COVID vaccines, um, but it goes everywhere. It's 
it's everything. Like I mentioned, there's the um, the AIDS drugs in the 90s. There's uh, this other example that he writes about on his blog um, called, col- uh, there's an illness called cholestasis, an infant short bowel syndrome, a rare condition with only a few hundred cases nationwide. Babies cannot digest food effectively, but you can save their lives by using an IV line to direct nutrients directly into their veins. But you need to use the right nutrient fluid. The FDA approved one version of the nutrient fluid, but it caused problems, especially liver damage. From European research, scientists suggested a version with fish oil would cause less liver damage, but the fish oil version wasn't FDA approved. A bunch of babies kept getting liver damage and everyone knew how to stop it, but if anyone did, the FDA would take away their licenses and shut them down. Around 2010, Boston Children's Hospital found a loophole that let them add fish oil to their nutrient fluid on site, and infants with short bowel syndrome at that one hospital stopped getting liver damage, and the FDA grudgingly agreed to permit it, but banned them from distributing their formulation or letting it cross state lines. So for a while, if you wanted your baby to get decent treatment for this condition, you had to have them spend their entire infancy in one specific hospital in Massachusetts. Around 2015, the FDA said that if your doctor applied for a special exemption, they would let you import the fish oil nutritional fluid from Europe, but you were only able to apply after your baby was already getting liver damage, and the FDA might say no. Finally, in 2018, the FDA got around to approving the correct nutritional fluid, and now babies with short bowel syndrome do fine after 20 years of easily preventable state-mandated damage and death. And it's not just this and coronavirus. I cannot stress enough, this is Scott Alexander writing, how typical this is of everything the FDA does all the time. And he provides more links then to data about the cholestasis and infant short bowel syndrome. In any case... Um, there are people that think that the FDA allows things to be approved too quickly. And while it is true that, for example, uh, this Alzheimer's drug was allowed to be approved uh, and, you know, probably doesn't really do anything. There are lots more cases that when the FDA doesn't approve things that can save lives. And so people know there's a life-saving thing out there and they're not allowed to use it because of the FDA. That example is much more common. And it's interesting. So, and I definitely recommend you read this piece. Again, it's astralcodex10.substack.com where you can find this about the FDA. And uh, I'll link it in the show notes too for you. But it's really fascinating. And one point that he gets to is that probably the really important thing here is to differentiate between the ideas of having something be approved. That is, you're allowed to take the drug. You're allowed to put fish oil in the nutrient supplements for the children that are dying, et cetera, et cetera, um, and whether or not insurance has to cover it. Because, for example, with the Alzheimer's drug, this is the problem, is that now a bunch of people are going to be spending $50,000 a year of taxpayer money on something that probably doesn't really work, Um, and that we should allow people to try things, but without necessarily having um, insurers have to cover it, and that maybe there can be levels of approval. So anyway, so this got me thinking, this whole article and this whole thought process of, you know, levels of approval and the difference between the government making something be allowed and the government making something be mandatory to be approved, that it must be provided for free. And then the step one higher than that, which is actual mandates that you have to do this thing or, you know, you're a bad person socially or anything else. You know, I think that we have a sense that you personally have a choice about the medical treatments you can pursue or not pursue. But I think that, you know, the the whole COVID situation has made that um, that sort of value that we have, that people have the right to choose their own medical treatments, very tenuous. And it's something that's been strained in the past because any time, of course, that you have um, – any kind of state health care, like the NHS in England, or um, when you have Obamacare here, or Medicare and Medicaid, uh, the question becomes when things are approved and when they're not, and whether or not you can access treatments because it's not you footing the bill for those treatments. So the second you introduce any kind of 
uh, mandated payment for somebody else's health care, you immediately introduce the possibility of mandates. Because, for example, if I have to pay for someone else's heart surgery, of course, I want them to lose weight and be healthier. I mean, I want everybody to lose weight and be healthy, especially my husband. But that's a whole other story. Uh, you know, just for their own sake, I want them to lose weight and be healthy. But when it comes to things like social credit, you know, if we're all paying for your health care, then you almost have like a social duty to lose weight and be healthy because otherwise you're costing everybody else something, right? You're uh, imposing your personal choice and your personal freedom on other people, right? And that's what we're told about the COVID vaccine is this same sort of argument is that the decision doesn't just affect you. You can actually infect other people if you choose not to get the COVID vaccine. Um, so this is, you know, it's not a new concept, but it's really an escalation of a concept that we've seen around for quite some time. This idea that, you know, public health is public, that it impacts all of us and we all need to be a part of it. I'm not endorsing that, by the way, just to be clear. Um, I think that people need to have responsibility for their own health choices. But that being said, I think that uh, a lot of people are out here making a lot of bad choices and that the more that we socialize our medicine, which we're seeing more and more with COVID and everything else, um, the more you're going to see a push to make your personal health decisions the decision of everybody else around you. So this becomes an important question. Where is actually the line between something being allowed and something being mandatory? Um, the whole thing uh, is coming to a head now with the COVID vaccines for children. I'm seeing more and more people questioning why COVID vaccines are not yet approved for kids. Um, personally, I'm not going to get my kids COVID vaccines, at least not for quite a while until there's decent data on safety and effectiveness because frankly I don't think it's out there yet that there's any significant risk to kids from COVID or that they are significant spreaders of the illness. Um, I also think that the safety data is still a little weak for young people. We're seeing rare side effects in young people, particularly young men, particularly after the second shot and I think that we need to take more time to make sure we have the dosage in these things right. It's not totally clear what's going on um, with kids' COVID vaccines right now. It's taking a little longer than it seems like it's supposed to be. Currently, um, the studies for kids' COVID vaccines appear to still be recruiting for study participants, which tells me that they do not really have enough data yet to show anything. Now, part of the problem might be that kids are, are already at such low risk for COVID that they may be having a hard time um, getting enough results to show effectiveness. This is one theory that I have heard online. Um, I saw one person speculating. And again, we're speculating because we have not seen the data from these trials yet. We, uh, there's data out for a 12 to 17-year-old Moderna trial that shows pretty limited effectiveness, actually. So that's kind of problematic. But um, in any case, we haven't seen any from the kids under 12 trials. And what I'm what I saw somebody guessing that I think is probably pretty possible is that we just there just aren't enough kids that age being hospitalized from COVID that we are able to draw any conclusions about whether or not the vaccine is effective because the kids aren't getting it anyway in the first place. So how can you compare if you have the control group that gets the placebo and you have the group that gets the vaccine and none of the kids are really getting very seriously ill from COVID, that makes it pretty hard to tell whether or not the vaccine is effective. And as we know, the vaccines um, are not as effective against, you know, just asymptomatic positive tests, which is what a lot of kids get when they get COVID. So it's hard to know, you know, it's hard to draw conclusions because there aren't kids showing up with lots of symptomatic illness. It's possible they're having a hard time like showing any effectiveness, which might be a hint to them all that the EUA isn't actually even needed for this age group, but we'll see. But in any case, I think that it's likely that although there could potentially, like we're seeing with the older kids, be some rare side effects, it would be pretty weird for the vaccine to have been taken by this many people and for it to have like very serious or widespread negative effects for younger kids. And 
you know, if they have the safe, if they're waiting on effectiveness data, I don't know what they're looking at for safety data, but if they're waiting on effectiveness data right now, and they don't know, and but they think it's generally pretty safe, my guess is that they should just open it up to people that want it. Because like I said about the FDA earlier, I think there's much greater potential harm from holding back on approving stuff than there is from, you know, allowing people to get something that might or might not be that effective. I don't know. But there are a lot of parents running around that are really like, overflowing with anxiety and freaking out because their kid's not vaccinated. I mean, some of them work on our cable news stations and they are extremely worried the kids are going back to school and they're not vaccinated. Well, I'm not going to get my kid vaccinated, but if it would make those people feel better to stick an unproven shot in their kids, am I really going to stand in their way? Like, if their doctor illegally gave their kid a COVID vaccine, am I going to be like, oh, we should throw that doctor in jail? I don't care. If people want to get their kids a COVID vaccine, then it's really none of my business. Just like it's none of those people's business whether or not I get my kid a COVID vaccine. Frankly, that's the way that this should work, right? Is that I should be able to not get my kid a COVID vaccine and they should be able to get their kid a COVID vaccine. You know, it's like raw milk. The FDA doesn't like that. People are allowed to drink raw milk, but sometimes I drink raw milk and I wouldn't want my neighbor or the FDA stopping me either. So anyway... You know, I don't have really strong feelings on, you know, what the FDA should do regarding because I haven't seen the data, frankly. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that are champing at the bit to get this thing out here to kids. And I honestly don't feel any strong reason why we should be trying to stop them as a society if they want to do that. You know, be my guest. That being said, I think the broader concern is that once this is allowed for kids, just like once it was allowed for adults, there are a whole bunch of people that cannot let well enough alone, that cannot just be happy that they got to take the vaccine that they wanted, that cannot just be happy that they can take their mask off because they're now at extremely low risk for severe disease and go to the grocery store and know that they're protected like a normal person. There are a whole bunch of these people out here that just can't handle it. And they want to make sure that you're mandated to get vaccinated too. And my fear is that the same thing is going to happen with kids. And that once it's approved, once it's allowed, it's going to very soon after that become mandatory. Now, I don't want to be too extreme but you know i i feel like i could see the writing on the wall last year massachusetts made flu vaccines mandatory for school for the first time i get my kids the flu vaccine frankly like i like the flu vaccine i think it's great but anyway uh you might not and i don't really have a problem with your kid not getting a flu vaccine because my kids got it so they reduced their risk of severe illness and flu really isn't that risky for young kids anyway. I mean, there's some risk, but it's not like we're not talking about tuberculosis here. It's the flu. So, I mean, a, a few hundred kids usually die from the flu each year. Last year, like none did. But We've never mandated the flu vaccine up until last year. And then we mandated it because we were so nervous about COVID. I'm not quite sure how that makes sense, but that's what we did. And, uh, you know, and then once it turned out there was no flu last year, essentially, we backtracked on that. They backed down from the mandate and allowed kids to go to school without getting a flu vaccine anyway. But uh, I'm a little concerned that the response of just the example I know off the top of my hand, the Massachusetts government to the pandemic was to me- to immediately start mandating totally unrelated vaccines. I'm a little concerned that once this COVID vaccine becomes approved for kids, they're going to want to mandate it for kids for school. Not to mention, of course, like you see in New York for or uh, in San Francisco for is it San Francisco or San Diego that just mandated it? anyway, some California city with lots of people. Um, gyms, restaurants, all these indoor places where you would be, they're mandating the vaccine to be able to come in and use those facilities. Uh, initially, New York like forgot children existed, so they weren't they were left out, but now you can bring your kid if, as long as they have a mask on, which is such a nice experience for the kid, I think, is when the adults all get to not wear masks and the kids all wear masks. But Anyway, I think that that's probably, 
you know, what's going to end up happening here is they're going to turn around and the second it's allowed, it's going to be mandatory. And I just like, I can't figure out why this is. I can't figure out why it is that people have no gray area between not allowed, banned, can't do it, and this has to be mandatory, it's good, so everybody has to do it. And it seems to me that the more I go through life, the more people there are walking around out here who just have a purely black and white view of all this stuff. It's either good and everybody should definitely do it and be forced to do it, whether it's with state power or with social pressure, or it should absolutely be banned and nobody should be allowed to do it at all. And there's there's no gradation. There's nothing in between for so many people, it seems to me. So this is my fear about the kids' COVID vaccine is that what's going to happen is that there are going to be people out here that are going to get their kid vaccinated and then just like you know they turned around and said to the unvaccinated people out there it's not enough for me to be vaccinated i need you to be vaccinated they're going to also say it to our kids never mind the fact that you know it it just seems to me logically that allowing them allowing the like vaccine happy have already gotten three booster shot people uh to get their kids vaccinated too would like solve a lot of the problem to me logically because you know that's the argument they're making about like masks in schools is when i say you know everybody who can get a vaccine wants one so why do we have to wear masks because the people who want to be vaccinated are now protected they're good um they turn around and say, well, not the kids. The kids aren't protected. The kids need to be protected. They're not allowed to get vaccines. So it seems to me that we could solve a lot of that problem if we could just say, like, fine, if you want to get your kid a vaccine, get your kid a vaccine and leave me alone about the mask, right? But I just, the way the last year and a half has unfolded leaves me a little bit concerned that that's not actually how all this is going to unfold. I think instead of them saying, okay, fine, now my kid's protected and I'm not psychotic anymore and your kid can take off their mask, I think that what's going to happen is they're going to say, now I'm not going to feel good until your kid is vaccinated too. So this has a name. Um, and it's called the totalitarian principle. Um, it was named that by a physicist, the totalitarian principle. And it goes like this. Everything not forbidden is compulsory. Um, so supposedly this originally comes from T.H. White. Uh, but I guess it seems to me that it's actually from the movie version of the Once and Future King, T.H. White's movie version of it. Um, but it is the motto of the totalitarian state um, in that book or movie represented by the anthill. So it's the motto that's on the anthill. And in that, um, the idea is that everybody does the same thing. We're all the same. We all do the same thing. It's for the good of society, and so we all do it. If it weren't good, it would be forbidden. And because it is good, it's compulsory. Everyone must do it. That's the totalitarian principle. And this has a lot of applications. Um, it's actually used in like physics for the motion of particles, where the idea of it is that as it says, everything not forbidden is compulsory. If a particular movement is allowed by the laws of physics, then um, it will be a part of the particle's motion. So um, it's used in physics to the understanding, essentially, that everything that can happen does happen. So if you don't see something happening, there must be some law that's preventing it from happening that you just don't know about yet. Um or that um, you're not observing it and it must actually be happening because everything that can happen does happen. Um, this is kind of based on uh, also the platonic principle, um, 
that was written about a lot in the 19th century and was really influential on Catholic thought and theology. So you might have heard of it if you study a lot of Catholic theology. But um, this idea of the uh, principle of plenitude. So um, the idea being that that everything that can exist in the universe does exist. The universe is full. Everything that's possible is. Um, and, you know, I mean, it. That this has been hugely influential on Western philosophy, and it, you know, it goes all the way up to Kant and everybody. But, um, you know, Aquinas wrote a lot about this, too, so, which is why I say it's, like, influential in Catholic thought. And, um... And they kind of, they agreed more with Aristotle than with Plato on it, I guess. But I'm not really that well read on philosophy. So I'm going to try not to get out of my depth in those waters. But, but I think that the underlying principle is a good one. That when things can happen, they do happen. And, and in particular, the way society is, um, you know... You might have listened to my episode with Matt Carano uh, a few weeks ago in which we talked about like libertarianism and, um, you know, whether or not that can work or how societies end up in a libertarian society. Will people ever vote in libertarianism? And, you know, I think in some ways we were in agreement that people may or may not vote that in, but sometimes they end up with it anyway. But I was thinking about this more in the context of this totalitarian principle that everything not forbidden is compulsory and the idea that everything that can happen, that everything that's allowed does happen and will happen. And I think sometimes we tend to think that in a free society, we should allow things, even things that we think are bad or damaging or unhealthy, and that when we allow them, people won't do them. Because we can all see that they're bad and damaging and unhealthy. And why would we ever, you know, why would we throw somebody who's addicted to drugs in jail? Because that just punishes them from that. Why would we make abortions illegal? Because they're going to happen anyway. Why would we, you know, ban lots of things? Look at the prohibition. People drank anyway, and it just led to more organized crime. So, this has sort of been this like unquestioned belief of our society for decades, or at least like the more libertarian elements of our society, that prohibitions don't work, that people are going to do what they're going to do anyway, and that laws don't, and in fact, can't mandate morality. You can't stop people from doing stuff that's bad just because it's bad. It has to have like some broader harm in society, like murder or something, right? Um, that you can't, so-called victimless crimes shouldn't be punished by society because you can't legislate morality. How often do we hear that? You can't stop people from drinking all the big gulps that they want just because it's bad for them. You can't make them better people by making bad actions illegal, so I think that this is something that the younger generations in particular have absorbed that, you know, everything should be allowed, even if I personally disagree with it. And like I say, this has been around for a while. I mean, this was the argument on abortion, if you remember, was that abortion ought to be safe, legal and rare, you know, and that that principle is something that I think, you know, people thought was like a nice, happy compromise you know, we can't, I might think abortion's bad, but I can't stop you from getting one. And, you know, if you're going to get one, you should at least be safe when you're doing it. I don't want to see more abortions, but, you know, we can't get rid of abortions by making them illegal. But here's the thing, is that when we made abortions legal, we did get more of them. You know, and abortions are dropping off now for other reasons, just because unplanned pregnancies in general pretty much are dropping off. Um, and actually, the younger generations having sex at all is dropping off. But um, that's not necessarily related to, to the morality of the thing. We went for many decades after Roe v. Wade, um, you know, with close to a million babies a year being aborted legally and 
I think it's inarguable that the legality of abortion made it more socially acceptable to get an abortion. And I mean, in late stage insane people's feminism now, you know, you see campaigns that people actually shouldn't be ashamed of having abortions, that abortions are great. I've seen it argued in major publications that abortions are a social good. I've seen social media campaigns campaigns to hashtag shout your abortion and um, really a push to make abortion something that's seen as a social positive in society. And I think that you know, maybe this is something that's inevitable. Maybe you literally can't make things legal without making them more socially acceptable. And in fact, making them a to be considered a social good in your society. Maybe once you make things legal, you make it so that it becomes very, very difficult to criticize them. You know, we've seen the same phenomenon um, when we talk about like gay marriage, right? So Rod Dreher has been for a long time calling this a law of merited impossibility because people said, you know, that if you, uh, you know, recognized gay relationships that you will be forced to recognize gay marriage. And they said that will never happen. But when it does, you bigots will deserve it. So then we went straight to um, gay marriages. And when they did that, people said, well, but then, you know, people will be forced to be a part of gay weddings, even if they disagree with it, like florists and bakers. Well, that will never happen. But when it does, you bigots will deserve it. Well, fast forward a couple years. And of course, florists and cake bakers and everyone else are getting sued because they didn't want to, you know, make the wedding arrangements or do the special cake to celebrate the gay marriage or whatever it is. Um, And they lack their own freedom of conscience now to conscientiously object to something that they fundamentally disagree with. Um, We watch it happen over and over again. You know, we watch it happen with abortion, with contraceptive drugs, with the idea that, you know, once we have mandated health care like Obamacare, once we're all invested together in public health, that it becomes mandated that companies like Hobby Lobby or groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor have to be a part of providing contraceptive coverage to their employees that they don't want to offer their employees because they fundamentally disagree with it. Um, So we rapidly, rapidly see the shift from, um, you know, being not forbidden to being compulsory in all kinds of topics. And I think that the vaccines are, you know, poised to go the same route. Um, I think, too, about like the drug decriminalization that we've seen just in my lifetime. Now, I mean... I know a lot of people out there enjoy their weed and I'm not trying to throw people in jail for smoking weed, but it's just interesting to me how we went so quickly from, you know, weed should be a ticket. People shouldn't be thrown in jail. This shouldn't really be illegal. It's not hurting anyone else to, you know, marijuana cafes in your community. How can a society continue to say this thing is frowned upon, this thing is bad, this is a social ill, it can't be in our community, um, and also have the freedom to have, you know, weed cafes in your downtown area. How can you turn to your kids and say, like, no, I mean, I know they have the thing here, but it's bad. And I I mean, I know people are going to make the same argument to me about like the alcohol prohibition. But the truth is that the alcohol prohibition did, in fact, reduce people's drinking. Like, of course, there were people that were still going to drink that went to speakeasies and bought from mobsters and everything else. But I mean, I don't know that I think that the way that we drink as a society is necessarily that healthy. I mean, like, we're not really Italy or France, where we're having like a glass of wine with dinner, we drink a lot more than that in our society. And and, I mean, believe me, I'm the first offender. I'm not trying to pass individual judgment on people. But I do think that um, drinking a lot is highly, highly normalized in our society. And would we be better off? Would I get more done in my life if I didn't drink? Probably. Um, 
you know, I think that there are a lot of people that probably wish they could cut back on their drinking, but don't feel able to and frequently drink more than they think that they ought to. Um, and I don't know that the freedom of choice is actually allowing people to make the choices that they think that they want to make. And I'm concerned that I think the same thing will happen with marijuana. I think that we're going to see a society full of people who not only wish they could cut back on drinking, but wish they could cut back on smoking weed as much as they do. And I know I'm going to get the weed hate from people. I It's one of those things. It's like when I went after porn a while ago and <laughs> people yell at me. I know it's, it's your baby. You love it. It's great. If you love weed, then go for it. But, you know, I... I'm more just commenting on how interesting it is that that it's become so socially acceptable so quickly. And I wonder about, you know, about what it's going to be like in another 10 years for our kids growing up and if they're going to go out to weed cafes and all these other things. And, you know, I know that I certainly wanting the best for my kids and, and their lives probably wouldn't want them to smoke very much weed if any you know, to get through their day to day lives, because I think that probably it's like not the greatest thing. Do I want them thrown in jail if they do? Well, no, of course not. Um, but I don't think that it necessarily should be as widespread as it is this idea that, you know, because we don't want to throw people in jail for doing it, we should just have it on every street corner and it should be totally socially acceptable and people should be afraid to say that it's like probably not good for our society if a ton of people are doing it. And, you know, we're already seeing states move on to next one. Psilocybin is the next big one. Mushrooms that I'm seeing people talk about um, decriminalizing and probably legalizing more drugs. So, you know, we're going to live in a society full of opium dens and everything else and... Like, I get it. People are going to do what they're going to do. But I also think that, and I said this with Matt Carano the other day, too. But, um, you know, I think that actually it's kind of the opposite. It should be the way it works where, um, you know, if we have the freedom to do everything, we actually have more of a responsibility to point out when things are unhealthy or bad or go against our principles. But... I think that's not ultimately what happens. And I think that what we're seeing in our society is that maybe this totalitarian principle phenomenon is actually inevitable. Maybe the ways that we think about, um, you know, what's right and what's wrong and what's a good choice and what's a bad choice. You know, we think we're all out here making these informed decisions for ourselves. Like I'm deciding, you know, how much to drink. I've decided how much weed smoking would be good for me. I've decided whether or not, you know, such and such would be a good way to live my life. I've decided whether or not to get a vaccine. But it seems to me that actually most of what's leading us to our decisions is what's socially acceptable around us. And what's socially acceptable around us uh, is in large part reflected in our laws. Now, I guess it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg thing. Like, I don't know which comes first, like with gay marriage even. I don't really know which came first. I, the attitudes, I think, were shifting, but I think that the change in the law also led to a change in attitudes. I mean, that's what we saw, and that's what we see with Roe v. Wade. It's settled law. It's settled law. It's precedent. Once Obergefell became law, then you know, it's settled law. We can't go back on it. That would be taking away people's rights. That's settled law. And you know, I think that rhetoric con contributes. Once something is legal, you almost have to, as a society, um, make it more difficult to criticize. And I think that that's what's going to happen um, also with the vaccines. I think that the vaccines are going to become a similar front in this culture war. And I think what we're going to see is that, um, you know, we're going to make the vaccines eventually legal for kids and then there's going to immediately be demands that they be made mandatory immediately immediately and um and i think that that we should resist that very strongly because you know it, the united states has been a society where people have been allowed to live and let live for a long time where it's been allowed to 
you know, if you have a religious conviction that prevents you from using a certain medicine or taking a certain vaccine, you've had the right to opt yourself or your kids out of that. Um, even in places with mandates typically have had religious exemptions, although we've seen a push against that places like Connecticut and uh, I think there have been a few other states that have worked on getting rid of the the religious exemptions in their in their <sighs> childhood vaccine mandates. But even so, you know, people have been able to homeschool and do other things. My concern is for like actual total social vaccine mandates. I mean, the school ones will be bad, but once they have the school ones, it's going to become um, much easier to mandate vaccines across the board because once all the kids are vaccinated they'll start to be able to go all these places and it will become just the unvaccinated adults who are the people left out of these edicts you know i think that the kids not being able to get vaccinated right now is holding back a lot of places from rolling out full-on vaccine requirements um but you know i hate to be a Debbie Downer on a Saturday, but I really question and wonder whether it's possible for a society of people to really live and let live. You know, I I just don't know anymore with the way things are going, whether people are capable of, um, you know, making a judgment to allow other people to make a different decision with them, even if they think it's really bad, like especially if you think it's really bad, because the idea isn't that people can make their own decisions only about like which ice cream flavor that they like. Oh, yeah. You have free speech about, you know, what's your favorite TV show that you have free speech about, but not when it comes to things that are really important. No, the point of the free speech, the point of the freedom of choice, the point of the the whole freedom thing is that people have freedom even in circumstances that you don't like their choices. Um, so that's tough. That's tough for people to get their minds around. And I worry that uh, the normies are not going to be able to handle the idea that there are people out there making a different decision from them. You know, I also think about it a little bit because you know, on the topic of like social judgment and other people judging you, right? I think that there are a lot of people out there that view you making a different choice as a judgment of them. And I think that's, you know, it's obviously very prevalent, um, you know, in these social issue debates, like with abortion, like if you say, I'm not going to pay for people's abortions because I think abortion is wrong. Um, you know, people be who believe that they have a right to get an abortion or have gotten an abortion feel that you are casting a judgment on them as a person. And, you know, I guess in some sense you kind of are casting a judgment on them because they did something that you believe is wrong. Although I think most people who are anti-abortion view women actually as part of the victims of abortion. So, you know, I think that you have to view it as a love the sinner, hate the sin thing, but that sense of nuance is lost on a lot of people. And a lot of people say, well, if you think abortion is wrong, then you're judging me. If you think gay marriage is wrong, then you're judging me and my marriage and my life. And, you know, I'm actually perfectly content to say that, you know, I go to a church and follow a religion that believes marriage is between a man and a woman, but um, I'm not trying to go out here and tell other people what to do. I mean, I guess if somebody came to me for advice, and I don't recommend it because I'm not a font of personal advice, really, but, you know, if you came to me for advice on, like, human sexuality and the fulfillment of human love and how to draw closer to God and you ask me those questions, then I would have opinions on them. But for the most part, most people I know who are gay or trans or whatever are not walking around asking me for my opinions on how to draw closer to God and human sexuality. It's just not something they're asking me. So, um, you know, and for good reason, I recommend that they talk to somebody who's a professional on that, of which there are many, and I am not one. But, um... I think there's a sense that disagreeing is a form of judgment. And I suppose it is. I mean, in the in the more traditional sense of judgment about, uh, you know, making 
um, a discernment between things, between choices and saying this one's good and this one's bad. And, you know, I'm okay with allowing people to make choices that I think are bad choices. I'm okay with allowing people to do drugs that I think they're a bad choice to do. That's okay with me. But I don't think that a lot of people, when it comes to things like vaccines, are willing to extend the same courtesy to me. I don't think, I mean, I think even on the social issues, I think that um, people feel, you know, if you say, I think marriage is between a man and a woman, that's just, you know, what I think the definition of marriage has always been and will remain, whether or not you like it, that I think people judge you and call you a bigot and say that you're evil and your opinion shouldn't be tolerated in polite society and that you shouldn't be allowed to have a job or work certain places because you're a bigot and intolerant and mean. And, you know, like I've I don't think literally ever been mean to a gay person, but having a different opinion is um, something that's not tolerated in a lot of circles. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting problem because I think that in some ways, yes, you're always making a judgment. Every action that you take in your life is a judgment. And um, people need to learn that, you know, you don't personally have to feel judged by somebody else disagreeing with you um and i've had this question like on face masks in school because when people ask why i won't send my kids to school i say the mask mandates i don't think it's developmentally appropriate for kids to walk around in a mask 40 hours a week i think it's bad for them you know and somebody said to me like don't people feel like you're judging them when you say that because they're sending their kids to school 40 hours a week in a mask and i said well maybe they do but like what do you want me to do it's just what i think is true and, you know, I, I guess it is a sort of judgment. I guess it is a sort of judgment on them, but I'm not mad at them over it. I'm not demanding that they take the mask off their kid, but they won't do the same for me. And I think the same thing is going to happen with vaccines is that people are going to rush out here and get all their kids vaccinated. And I'm not, and a lot of other parents like me, I know are probably not for a little while. You know, maybe if your kid's high risk, maybe if they're immune compromised, maybe you really want your kid to be vaccinated so you can travel. Whatever it is, there might be a lot of reasons you want to get your kid vaccinated. There might be a lot of reasons you don't want to get your kid vaccinated. And if I don't get my kid vaccinated, I have a feeling that that's going to be a lot more of a problem in society than people feeling judged because I said that I don't think the data is there yet on the vaccine. I just don't. So I think the whole tolerance and liberality in society only is cutting one way at the moment. And I think it's a problem. I don't know if uh, people are going to be able to coexist like this, because I think maybe it's actually true that people are fundamentally a little bit totalitarian and really want everything that's not forbidden to be compulsory. So that's my take of the day. Anyway, if you have thoughts on this, uh, let me know. I am at Alice Shattuck on Twitter. The podcast account is at 1570project on Twitter, or you can email me 1570project at gmail.com. Looking forward to talking to you more about it and another great show next week. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a great weekend. Clouds rolled in and I said Must have brought the rain from Boston But you looked at me and I felt the sun